Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. Welcome to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, Chairman of Colorectal Surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. Very pleased to have Dr. Matthew Kalady join us here. Matt is the Church DeBartolo Chair in Colorectal Surgery. He's also the Director for the Weiss Center for Hereditary Colorectal Neoplasia. He's the Section Chief in our department for all of colorectal oncology, and he's also the Vice Chairman of Surgery here in the department. Matt, thanks for joining us on Butts and Guts. Thanks a lot, Scott. It's great to be here. So, obviously, I know you well, but uh, for the listeners out there, tell a little bit about you. Where are you from? Where did you train? And how did it come to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, a little bit outside of Philadelphia, and it's been a little bit all over the place, but eventually I did all my medical school at Duke University and my general surgery residency training there. I was drawn to the colorectal surgery department for fellowship and had such a great experience, I decided to stay on staff after that. And I've been here ever since, about 12 years now. Matt, we're going to talk today about something that's made a lot of news recently, but it's also a much bigger picture, and that's this trend towards colon cancer being in the younger patient. So before we jump into that, talk a little bit about colon cancer in general. How common is colon cancer? How does it present? And a little bit more about the background in terms of who's at risk, who's not at risk, and how's it worked out? So colon cancer is a big, big problem in our country and in the world. It's, it's one of the top cancer killers in the entire country, in the top two or three. There's about 150,000 cases of colorectal cancer every year, and about 40,000 people die from colon cancer every year. It's a big deal. It's kind of a, a bit of a taboo because people don't like to talk about their bowel habits or talk about cancer in their guts. It's an important topic. It's one that needs to get out there, and people need to know about these things. Some of the warning signs are bleeding, changing your bowel habits. You could have thinner stools or pain when you move your bowels or anything that just doesn't seem quite normal should really get looked at. So there's patients that have rectal cancer and there's patients that have colon cancer. And a lot of times we hear about colorectal cancer. What's the difference between the two? So there's a great distinction there. So basically the rectum is this last part of the colon. So the GI tract goes from the stomach down to the intestines or the small intestines. And then the small intestine empties into the colon and it goes around the right side of your body around all the way to the colon, around the, across your body and down the left. And then the very last part, it's about 9 to 12 inches or so, is the rectum. And that's a, it changes a little bit. It's a more of a muscular tube, and that's the thing that helps evacuate the stool. The distinction is important because the treatments are a little bit different. So rectal cancer gets treated sometimes with chemotherapy and radiation, whereas colon cancers are treated mainly with surgery up front and then maybe chemotherapy afterwards. Rectal cancer also gets treated with surgery. That's a mainstay too, but they're a bigger team and a little bit different treatment modalities with that. If you were to paint a picture of an average patient who gets colon cancer, you mentioned a little bit about what they experience with some bleeding or maybe some changes in bowel habits, but how old are they, men versus women, any other presentations that they have, uh, kind of in prelude to what we're going to talk about here today. All people are at risk, uh, some more than others. But one thing I didn't mention, about 1 in 20 people over their lifetime will get colon cancer. So about 5% incidence throughout your entire life, you'll get colon cancer. It's in general an older person's disease because things happen over time. Changes happen in the colon. And then even when those changes happen, it takes 5 to 10 years to develop from a normal colon to what we call a polyp or a precursor, a lesion before it becomes cancer, then a cancer. So within that time, it's usually in their 60s and 70s are the people that get these. Men and women are affected equally for the most part, but really it's an older population and usually a disease of the older people. So one of your hats that you wear is this whole concept of hereditary colorectal neoplasia. Family history, what does that play into colon cancer? 
Sure, it's a huge role. So there are people that get colon cancer or rectal cancer. We don't know why. It just happens, and it's luck of the draw or something we ate or something we drank or something we breathed. Whatever it is, we can't really tell. But then there's a whole other segment of people that cancers run in families. And some of it is just mom had it or dad had it and you get it. And then there's something a little bit more detailed where it's called inherited mutation or it gets passed down from generation to generation where the basic building blocks of your body called DNA have a change in them. And that change actually predisposes you to getting cancers. So there's various syndromes that are associated with that, something called the familial adenomatous polyposis or something called Lynch syndrome. And those people have a huge chance of getting colon cancer and at younger ages. So some of those patients, for instance, people with FAP or, or familial polyposis have almost 100% chance of getting cancer over their lifetime. With Lynch syndrome, it's a little bit different, but still about 60 to 80% of people will get cancer over their lifetime. So it's important to kind of pick that up. And the way that we pick that up a lot of times is figuring out what happens in your family. So it's really important for you as a patient and for your doctor to have these discussions about are there other people in your family that have had colon cancer or even other kind of cancers that run on these syndromes, such as uterine cancer or ovarian cancer. So let's hone in now on this whole concept of colon cancer in the younger population. What's the link there? It's a great question and one I wish I had an answer to. We don't know. We know that because of the better job that we're doing as a country in terms of screening and awareness, actually the incidence of colon cancer in older patients is going down. So just to take a step back, it's really important we recommend everybody without symptoms when they hit age 50 to start getting colonoscopies or start getting screening. The beauty of that is that that's a test that we know for sure can detect polyps and precancerous lesions and cancers. It prevents cancers from happening and prevents death from cancer. So colonoscopy is an absolute important test at age 50. We've done better with that. So I think people who are at risk for getting cancer are getting screened. And the incidence for older people in their 50s, 60s, 70s is actually going down in the United States. However, what we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years, and it's becoming even more alarming because the trend continues to rise, is that people in their 30s and 40s, the incidence of cancer in that age group is going up. So it's a contrast to older people getting better, younger people it's rising. Is this a new trend? Is this something that's actually, you mentioned if it lasts 20 to 30 years, uh, is this the Will Rogers effect that, you know, we're looking at it more often and so it's going to be there? What are we talking about? I think there's probably a little bit of both. I think we are more aware of it and people are getting screened and it's being reported better. But at the same time, it's, it's a real trend. There's a lot of theories. We don't know why yet. And I think it's an area of intense study. But the diet's changed over time. I think lifestyles have changed. There's things that are happening probably in people's bodies that are causing these changes. And as I said, this happens over multiple, multiple years. So probably what happened 30, 40 years ago and what you're eating at that time, what you're doing at that time is actually coming of age now in some of these people. So I know you mentioned a few of these things before, but I really want to make sure that we're clear on this topic. Are there certain younger patients that are more prone to developing colon cancer? And if so, what are the risk factors for colon cancer maybe in general and maybe then for the younger patient? There are three main groups of people who are young who get colon cancer. And the one we talked about already is the hereditary predisposition. So people who are born with inherited risk that's going to make it much higher. People get the cancer in their 20s and 30s in that age group. It's a real phenomenon, and that's one group. And that's not a huge group. That's actually surprisingly only about maybe 25 to 30% of the people of all the young cancers that are in, on the rise. The other group is something called inflammatory bowel disease. So people with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, the chronic inflammation and the changes in the colon also predispose people to getting cancers at younger ages. So that's the second group. And then the third group is we just don't know. And that's the, the big group, and that is 
people, again, that probably just have risk factors that seem to be accelerated for some reason. So risk factors in general for all people with colon cancers has to do with the diet. So as a general rule, we say low fat, low red meat, high fiber, lots of fruits and vegetables, kind of a Mediterranean diet almost is better. You know, there's people who eat perfectly and still get cancer, so we can't figure that out. Smoking is associated with cancer, so avoiding smoking. Alcohol in moderation doesn't seem to do much, but people who drink uh, several drinks per week have a high risk as well. And then in terms of lifestyle, it's physical activity. So it's been shown that people who exercise regularly several times a week have a lower chance of getting colon cancer. So a lot of things that I look at it to say, common sense, what does it seem to you, what would make sense to be healthy in general? Those are the same things that kind of affect you for colon cancer. You mentioned some of the symptoms before, and we kind of talked about them, but are there symptoms that truly can be ignored, or should all symptoms be worked out? Everything should be evaluated, at least discussed. I won't ignore anything. The other scary part of this is sometimes there are no symptoms, and that's why screening is so important. And actually, the majority of things are probably no symptoms. But if you have bleeding, it's very easy, particularly as a young person, to just blow it off because, one, you don't want to deal with it, but two, oh, you're young, you, you couldn't have cancer. It's just a hemorrhoid, and you don't do anything about it, or you're starting to have pain, Belly pain, it's a little bit different when you eat. Those things, oh, it's just a virus. But when these things persist, that should be looked at because it's really, really important. And start with your primary care doctor. Just tell them there's something there, and they can do some simple evaluations on you. And if you need to get referred to a specialist, then you get looked at more. The other part of that, particularly if you have a family history of colon cancer, it doesn't even have to be a syndrome, so to speak. But if there's people in your family that have cancer, be aware of that. You know, Be your own kind of advocate for your own health and, and talk to your doctor and get something done. So let's walk through two different scenarios. The first scenario is somebody that's young and they're having some rectal bleeding. It's not like they got a problem with their arm that they can take a look at it. And like you said, they need to go in and talk to their primary care doc. But what can they expect to have during that office visit? Sure. So it's it's a conversation to kind of characterize what the bleeding seems like. Does it seem like it's a typical hemorrhoid or something typical? Other symptoms that might be more benign diseases are not cancer. But at the very least, we'll do an exam. And it can be uncomfortable for you, but basically take a look at that area, examine things just by a feel, and then also put a small scope in and take a look right at the hemorrhoid areas. Because those are the most common things, particularly in young people. And if you have a source of the bleeding and it all fits together, there might not be anything else that we have to do. But if it persists or we can't find an obvious source, then we'll investigate more. And it might be a colonoscopy or a little something more advanced test. So let's now say that they underwent a colonoscopy and they're referred to you. And you get an unfortunate diagnosis of colon cancer in young or old patient population. Is there a difference in treatment depending on age for a younger patient? Let's say they don't have one of the hereditary things that we talked about before. Or you got a cancer of the right colon and doesn't matter what age you are, that's the treatment of it versus the left colon. And can we talk a little bit more about treatment options? So the mainstay for colon cancer is to have it removed. So you take out the colon, where the area of the colon that has the cancer in it, and all the lymph nodes that drain that area. You don't have to take the whole colon out. People's bowel function afterwards are still pretty good and might change slightly, maybe one extra bowel movement a day, I think, depending on what area the colon is. But there's not a big distinction between young and old. It's an anatomic thing where we take out the cancer with the colon around it. And if it's going to go somewhere first, it usually goes to lymph nodes, and we take out the lymph nodes that drain that area. We look at it under a microscope, and then you kind of stage it that way. And that might be it. You might not need any of the treatments and a very good chance of being cured. You might have some disease that's gone to the lymph nodes, and that's still a very curable situation. It's just that you might need chemotherapy to kind of help clean up some of the cells that might be floating around in the body still. But again, it's still a very treatable disease. Left side, right side, again, you take out that part of the colon. The other nice thing is we could do a lot of these things now laparoscopically, which means a couple small incisions around the belly. I usually make one incision about one centimeter or a little less than even half an inch. 
around the belly button, put a camera in there and take a look around. And then we put small five millimeter ports, which is even smaller than that, and work through those. We work on a camera and one a little bit bigger incision where we take the specimen out from or colon out from. But people do very well with it. They recover quickly. They're only in the hospital a few days. There's always a little bit of pain, but it's not bad. It's very bearable. People go home just on oral pain medications and are back to feeling themselves in a couple weeks and usually back to everything without any restrictions within six weeks. So you mentioned a little bit about the laparoscopic or minimally invasive surgery, whether it's laparoscopic or robotic. The operation itself, roughly, what can a patient expect in terms of the recovery time period of that, in terms of not only just getting back to work and functioning, but that actual time in the hospital? What can they expect there? I'm a big believer, and I think our whole group's a big believer in trying to get people up and out of bed and moving right away, trying to get them back to normal as, as soon as possible. We do use several different types of medications that are non-narcotics. They're not addicting that help take the edge off when they all work together. Pain is very bearable, very reasonable. Usually out of bed the first day, moving around, give them stuff to drink right away the first day, try to work breathing with their lungs, getting kind of back in recovery. And then as soon as they're drinking and tolerating things and not feeling sick, we give food some real food or softer foods. And then when they're tolerating food and the bowel start to work, they can go home. And that can be two days in some cases. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. And then in general, particularly if it's laparoscopic, people feel okay in a week or two, might not be up to their full speed. They still have had surgery. They've had anesthesia. They could be a little groggy. But usually by about six weeks, they're back to everything they were doing. And do people with colon cancer get a bag? Usually not. And I know that's a big stigma, and that's what everyone thinks of right away. But the vast majority of people do not. Colon cancer, almost never, because you can treat colon cancer, hook everything back up, and no issues with that. For rectal cancer, small percentage of people, maybe 20%, 25% of people, may need to get a bag permanently. And that's because where the location is, if the tumor is down on the muscles that control your continence or your ability to hold on a stool and have good bowel function, if the tumor invades those muscles, then those muscles have to come out to do a good cancer operation. And in that situation, they get a bag. Again, it's only for rectal cancer, about 25%, if that. And then some people with rectal cancers will get a temporary bag as the connection is pretty low down. And just kind of keep that area safe to make sure everything's healed okay and the bowels are working all right. We'll give a temporary, what we call an ileostomy, which is a piece of the small bowel comes up to the side. And then after a few months, to make sure everything's healed and everything's okay and you're totally recovered, another small surgery gets done to close that ileostomy. And usually in the hospital a day or two after that, that's a pretty quick recovery and pretty simple, straightforward surgery. So you talked a little bit about the postoperative needs for those patients that need chemotherapy if the cancer is spread to the lymph nodes or maybe somewhere else. How long do people have to be on chemotherapy? Is it a pill they have to take or do they give it through the IV? What does that all involve? So it really depends on what stage you have and maybe a the degree of how many lymph nodes there are. Some of it depends on your own medical conditions and your own preferences, and some of it depends on the medical oncologist preferences. Most of the chemotherapy is usually about six months, and you might get a pill, you might get an infusion that you get every two weeks or so, and they go through cycles, but usually it's about six months. And then what's the typical surveillance? How do you follow these patients? So really, really important. So after everything's said and done, that we still keep a close eye on you and keep in contact with your doctors. We know that if something's going to come back, the vast majority comes back within the first two years. So we're pretty aggressive with surveillance in the first two years. Every three months, you get a lab draw, something called a CEA. It's just something out of your blood that we check as a tumor marker. And you do a physical exam and talk to the patient to see, are you having any problems? Are you having weight loss or anything that a little abnormal just to kind of raise an eye to say what's going on. And that's every three months for the first two years. At the one-year mark, you get a colonoscopy. And if that's clear, then it's every three years. And that's going to be every three years for the rest of your life. 
And then depending on the stage, we usually get a CT scan of, of the chest, belly, and the pelvis at the one-year mark and then every year after that. So I'm somebody who does not want to get colon cancer. You mentioned a little bit more about uh, the diet and stuff, but is there anything that I can do to prevent the onset of colon cancer? Unfortunately, nothing's perfect. I think just you leading a good, healthy lifestyle, watching what you eat, exercise, uh, avoid smoking. Those are kind of the general rules. Um, I, I wish there were something I could say definitively. He could prevent it, but unfortunately, there's nothing out there. Matt, do you think if you were to put on your Nostradamus hat, do you think this is a trend that's going to continue, or do you think that something is going to change in the future in terms of this link? I think the trend will continue, unfortunately, until we figure out what's causing it and how to intervene on it. Now, there are some things, the things we're trying to do here is advocating for earlier screening. We've done some research here that shows that the younger patients tend to get cancers in the rectum and tend to get cancer on the left side of the colon. That could be picked up by just a simple procedure in the office called a flexible sigmoidoscopy that looks at the rectum and the left side of the colon. You don't need a fancy prep for it. You don't need sedation for it. You can just get it done right in the office as part of a regular office procedure. Vast majority of the cancers, too, that are happening in the population happen between age 40 and 50. So we are starting to advocate, if we can, and get insurance to cover it and actually be able to do this. I think the right thing to do is try to get people screened as they're hitting 40 just with a simple flex sig. Or there's different stool tests that you could do that kind of trigger. If there's blood in your stool, then maybe you need something a little bit more. So I think as we as a group, but also as a national network and policy providers to try to intervene in some of these things. And I think that we'll be able, just like we do in the older patients, when the screening gets better, we'll pick them up when they're not cancer yet. But then in that polyp stage, we can actually intervene and stop it before it comes to cancer. And give a sneak preview. What do you think is on the horizon? What is some of the research that is ongoing in terms of colorectal cancer? I think genetics or basically understanding what makes up a tumor and why things happen, we're finding out more and more about this. As we uncover the true underlying causes, we'll figure out, too, what's happening for that individual patient. And you say, well, once you've seen one colon cancer, well, you've seen that one colon cancer. Instead of you haven't seen them all, you've seen that one, because everyone's a little bit different. So I think down the road, we're going to be able to look at the genetic makeup of that tumor and then say, based on this, this drug might be more responsive for you as the individual, or this chemotherapy regimen is going to work better for you. So I think there's going to be ways to figure that out so the treatment's better, and I think we're going to work towards better things that are more preventative, too. There'll be probably some simple medicines, maybe even aspirin or something simple like that, that will help us to decrease polyp formation and decrease cancer. So I think down the road, there will be some interesting things happening. And I'll toot your horn since you won't. Matt is one of the very few colorectal surgeon NIH-funded researchers doing groundbreaking research. Matt, give us a look into some of the things that you're doing in terms of this aspect of colorectal cancer. We're doing a lot of the things I kind of talked about when we're trying to figure out response to therapy. How can we improve responses to therapy and how can we determine what drugs might work towards getting that better? We're trying to do some drug discovery. We do look at all of our tumors from patients. We take samples with their permission, of course. One of the things that we're doing right now, which I think is very, very interesting, is looking at the bacteria that live in the colon. We have a very intricate relationship with what we call the microbiome. So it's bacteria live in your colon. There's millions and millions of bacteria in your colon. And what they do to help digest food and the byproducts that they make, we're finding out, may contribute to cancer. So we're actually trying to study some of the microbiome, and we're trying to study, you know, how can you either manipulate the microbiome to make treatment better or to prevent cancer. So there's a lot of things going on right now. I think it's a very exciting field. And the ultimate goal is for us rather to find things out so we can cure people from cancer or prevent cancer from happening. 
Yeah, that's amazing stuff that you're doing and the majority of it well above my head. So Matt, a couple of things to wind up that are quick hitters to get to know you a little bit better. What's your favorite sport? Basketball. Well, you were a college baseball, baseball player baseball. at Harvard, nonetheless, and now it's basketball and baseball. There we go. He could say this. I, I love watching basketball, but I love watching my kids play baseball. Uh, Touche, but your alma mater, Harvard, when you're a baseball player, would not like that. Favorite meal? Chicken Parmesan. The last book that you read, non-medicine? Grit by Angela Duckworth. And best thing you like about living here in Cleveland? Love the people. Good people, down to earth. Good. And just to close up here, sum up colon cancer, and specifically as it goes to young patients, but just colon cancer in general. What's the take-home message here today? Colon cancer is common, it's preventable, and it's treatable. Know the warning signs. Don't be afraid of things. Get the questions answered that you have and intervene in a timely manner. That's fantastic words of wisdom. To learn more, please download our free colon cancer treatment guide at clevelandclinic.org slash colon cancer. That's clevelandclinic.org slash colon cancer. And to make an appointment with a Cleveland Clinic digestive specialist, please call 216-444-7000. That's 216-444-7000. Matt, thanks for joining us here on Butts and Guts. Thank you very much. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.